Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. You take almost any of the creeds of the Christian church, and you will find that there is a, a unique historical character to them and historical reference. I remember when I first began to notice this, I grew up in a church where there were two things we did every Sunday. We repeated the Lord's Prayer, and we repeated the Apostles' Creed. So I learned both of them by rote memory, you know, start the clock, and it would run on those. And one day, I never paid any attention to the Apostles' Creed. I was pastoring, and I thought, uh, you know, I ought to preach a series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed, if it is as important as we think it is. And so I began. And when I got into it, you know the thing that interested me most was the fact that as we talk about God and what we believe, we talk about two human beings. Because you cannot tell the story of Christ without including Mary, and you cannot tell the story without including Pontius Pilate. Now some of you have heard me say this before, who heard me speak so many times. But when I got to the Pontius Pilate thing, I laughed. Because I thought, how under the sun did a cheap, second-rate Roman governor get into the basic creed of the Christian church so that every Sunday morning there are millions of people that stand up and say, we believe in Pontius Pilate. I understand why we say we believe in God, and I understand why we say we believe in Mary. But why Pontius Pilate? You know, I doubt if even Pilate's mother, when she was carrying him in her arms, dreamed that 2,000 years later there'd be thousands of people every Sunday who would pay tribute to her son. But there it is. And you see, the reason it is there is because of the basic historical character of the Christian faith. If you could prove that Pontius Pilate never lived, and if you could prove that the events related to him that are part of the Christian story never happened, you would have pulled the ground right out from under the Christian faith. Because our faith is a faith that has its roots in time and space. Now, uh, you will find that that's particularly true in connection with Jesus, because we have the story of his conception, we have the story of the manger, we have the story of his childhood visit to the temple, we have the story of his public ministry, we have the story of his death, we have the story of his resurrection, and then of his ascension, a beginning and an end on that earthly experience of Jesus. So the faith that we have about Christ is a historical faith. It's a faith of, that it has, that is very interested in history. And what we believe is that he, Jesus, is the key to it all. Now, uh, that uh, has a special interest for me because of something that I heard early in my life. It was back in the days, some of you that are old enough will remember when, if you're in my vintage, you will remember that the great preacher in the United States in 1950 was a Roman Catholic preacher, and his name was Fulton Sheen, magnificent preacher, and the first great TV preacher in this country. And uh, I can remember how all the students at Princeton would 
when he was on, they'd jam into the commons in order to watch this great preacher perform. I found myself reading some of his stuff, and so I found in his writings a concept that has influenced me the rest of my life. It was a concept, a good Roman, expressed it in Latin, the Philosophia Perennis. And by the Philosophia Perennis, if you translate it, the perennial philosophy, what he meant was that eternal story of the truth of God that runs down through history. He said, you know, there is a line that starts with Abraham, and it runs down through history to the present moment. As you look down through history, it may appear, that story of the of faith may appear to wander all over the map. One generation, one age, it may appear to be way over on the right. In another age, it may appear to be way over on the left. But he said, sometimes it may even appear to disappear. But if you dig deep enough, you'll find it's there somewhere. But then he said, you know, if you get a long enough view, you will find that that, air, that line is straight as a die and that the, what wanders is not the line of faith, but it is the cultures of humankind that wander back and forth with different emphases in different centuries and different, and different eras. And he said the key to the future is to find the center of that line of faith. Now, uh, that's going to help to me. And, you know, that one of the beautiful things about that is it saves you from Gallup Pope. Because you don't look around to see how many people are saying what, but you say, where is that center of faith that is true to the origins of our faith and that is true to the nature of the revelation that God is giving us in history? But when we say that Christianity is basically a, a historical faith, we say something else. We say that it is primarily a story of persons and events rather than eternal truth. Now, I hope you hear what I'm saying at this point, because certainly we believe in eternal truth. But those eternal truths for us are secondary to certain <coughs> persons and events. And we will this will come back as we move along through our time together. But it is essential that we grasp that if we want to know the Christian faith in its true nature, and if we do not want to miss and get a substitute for it. Now, uh, you will find that in this, it's different from many of the other religions of the world. Because you take a great religion like Buddhism, you will remember it's built on four noble truths. And the way you find those four noble truths is through Eight, an eightfold path, and those have to do with abstraction. They do not have to do, you do not even have to need to believe that Buddha ever lived. But uh, it, it, it is a matter of abstract truth. That is very different when you come to Christianity because you see, we are a, relig uh, are a religious faith that believes in a very strong doctrine of creation and that God is vitally interested in his creation and has not left it and is at work within it. Now, as we say, it's a story of certain persons and events. Now, that's the reason that Jesus said when they were quizzing him, he said, and you can imagine how this tantalized the people who were criticizing him and who were, who were uh, arguing with him. 
when they said to him, what is truth? And he looked at him and said, I am. Now, how would you respond to that? But that's what Jesus said. He said, I am the truth. Now, we believe that history is important. We believe that truth is important. But the key to understanding that truth lies for us in persons and events. We have a story, and it is a sacred story, and it is every person's story, and we know that the key to that story and the key to every person's story is the one whom we call Christ. If history is that important to us, what about present history? What about today's New York Times? Should I be able to look at the New York Times today and find some indication something that fits with uh, what we believe as Christians. There is something within us that we have wanted to believe there's some significance about the turnover of that day, something significant, and so we want some significance in our time and in our history. Now, I want to talk this morning from a personal point of view. You know, um, I'm going to tell you what I think. I hope that what I think is biblical. That's what that's my goal. And if it is, then it will be helpful to you. If it isn't, if it's my own idiosyncratic thoughts, it will not be. But uh, I'll let you be the judge on that. But you know, there are certain advantages in getting old. And uh, I found myself uh, grateful. I have no interest in being any younger than I am. I don't know many days that I'd be willing to give up. 26th of June, I wake up. It was my birthday. I was 77. I wake up with a start, as if I had been startled awake. I was in the middle of a dream, vivid dream. I never remember my dreams except for one. And that one that I remember, I've had a thousand times. I've got to preach in 15 minutes and don't have a sermon. I came to with a start, and this dream was so vivid, I, I could remember it. And... uh this was my dream. I was leaving an Episcopal retreat center. And to get out, I had to be cleared by the monk that ran the retreat center. And I'm standing in front of the monk's desk, waiting for him, and he's in no hurry. Finally, he looks up at me and says, may I sing for you the 13th Psalm? And he started singing. I will sing unto the Lord. And bang, I was awake. I thought, for heaven's sakes, 13th Psalm? I don't ever remember reading the 13th I've never studied it, never memorized it, but there it was, clear as crystal. 13th Psalm. So I grabbed the Bible before I forget my dream to check it out. And I turned, and the first verse said, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And I thought, boy, that was a miss. But I kept reading. I got down to the fourth verse. Now, the sixth verse. There are only six verses in it. The sixth verse is, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. I thought, for heaven's sake, that's what I ought to put on my tombstone. Story of my life. He has dealt bountifully with me. Now, uh, as I look at where we are in human history at this particular moment, I have a deep question inside me as to whether we're not at a hinge point in human history. You know, there are hinge points in history. 
I think there are times when not even God can do very much. But there are some moments when there is an openness and a possibility. And so you get uh, a Martin Luther. And the world is different when he's over with than it was before. You have your, your own list of dates, whether it's the Exodus or whether it's the birth of Christ or the Pentecost or whether it's Alexander the Great. There, there are certain hinge points in history. I really wonder if we, God has not given you and me the privilege to live at a hinge point in history. Because there's some new factors present in human history today that have never been present there before. Now, uh, the things that I think about, and I'm so grateful I've lived to, to this moment. Uh, one of the things is, without any question, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of Eastern Europe and Russia and that section of what never dreamed 15 years ago that I'd ever uh, worship in Moscow. I never dreamed that I'd ever have the privilege of speaking to a gang of seminary students in Moscow, but I did. The world has changed. We have had a string of Romanian students. It started immediately after the fall of the Berlin Wall at, ha at Hesbury College. And uh, I got to know the president of the, of the Romanian Baptist Church, who uh, 13 days before Ceausescu died, he, with 45 other Baptist pastors, wrote Ceausescu a note saying, uh, Your Majesty, you are but dust and ashes and have no authority over our souls. And 13 days later, Ceausescu was killed, and uh, they found themselves in a totally different world. Now, uh, China. China may be appear, appear to be closed, but I remember I was in Guangzhou and Old Canton, when they said they just permitted the opening of four churches. And I had the privilege of going to church in a city where the church had been closed for, Mary, what, 40 years? 30, 30 something. Closed tight. You could hardly talk about Christ, lest you be, lest that be destruction for you. You did, were not even, were not even safe to talk to your children lest your children should quote you to a neighbor kid. That kind of thing. But here I was, worship. Now there's a technological change that has taken place. I noticed that the Wall Street Journal this week in one of its editorials was talking about the fact that in the, the most, maybe the most significant thing in the Tiananmen Square story was the role of the fax machine. Because when the Chinese communists mowed those students down. The fax machine meant there was no way that the political powers could keep that word from being sent across the world almost instantaneously. And now you add email to that. There is no way that a dictatorial government can keep its people from access to the rest of the world. Now, what difference does that make? That means that there is not a person alive on the face of the earth that theoretically is beyond the reach of the gospel. That has never happened before. Can you imagine what the apostle Paul would do? 
I'd like for you just to take a little time and think. What would Paul do? <laughs> if he had that kind of access to the world, I think of that and something inside me says, Ken, what, what, what should you be doing? And what should the church be doing? If we take seriously the, the fact that God has given us the key to human history, the key to every person's story, we know it and they do not. Early this morning I was um, thinking about this and suddenly I remembered a story that Helen Roosevelt told. If you don't know Helen Roosevelt, she was a Cambridge graduate, a woman, who back in the 30s went to, uh, went to medical school and then decided to go to Africa as a missionary. She's been her life out there as a medical doctor. Incredible woman. They had some problems, and they had a missionary that had to be flown home to England. The country that she was in was in enough chaos that they couldn't fly her out of there, so she had to take her to Uganda. So she took her friend to Uganda, put her on an airplane, and shipped her off to the United to Great Britain, the United Kingdom. She got back in her Land Rover and started back a long lonely journey, traveling all night. At six o'clock in the morning, she's traveling along, very sleepy. So she stops to make herself a cup of coffee. She goes to the back of her Landover, gets her stuff out, fixes her coffee and looks, and there's an African staring at her, leaning against a tree right there. She said, you know, the last thing in the world I wanted to see at that moment was another human being. I was relishing being alone, and I was in a hurry. But she said, I looked up, and there he stood. And he came to me. And he said, are you a sent one? She said, what did you say? Are you a sent one? And she said, well, <laughs> yes, I guess that's what I am, a sent one. But why do you ask? He said, well, he was a herdsman. He said, I have a brother who's a school teacher. And a few days ago, he came home early. And we said, why are you home early? And he, she said, the African said, my brother said, well, a stranger has come to our school who says he is a sent one from the great God to tell the children about Jesus. And he said, are you a sent one? <laughs> Can you tell me about the great God? And can you tell me about this Jesus? She said the way he used the word Jesus dramatically, she knew that he didn't know whether, whether Jesus was a person or what. All he knew was the word. And she said, well, yes, I can tell you about Jesus. So she took out the wordless book. Here's an illiterate African who can't read, 
And she showed him that page, black and white and red, black and red and white and gold. And she took him through the story of salvation. And he was asked Christ to come into his heart. And she said, tell me more about why you asked me. Well, he said, you know, when my brother came home early and told us there was a stranger at our school to tell our children from the great God about Jesus, he said, I asked him, what did you do? Oh, he said, I went to the pub and got drunk. But he said, you know, I couldn't get it out of my head. So he said, as I tended my cattle, I kept saying, I sent one from the great God to tell about Jesus. And he said, you know, it was strange. There was a sweetness about that name. Didn't know what it was. But when I would say it, there was a sweetness that would flood me. Now he says, I know why. Now you know, <laughs> yesterday I pulled down A History of Christianity by Paul Johnson. Christian Century said it's the best single volume history of the Christian church ever written. And it is a great work. I wanted to check on a quotation from Pascal's memorial. So I thought he might enclose it. Include it. So I turned, checked the reference, and found Pascal, and turned to the page and started reading. Now, Paul Johnson's a good Roman Catholic. Uh, Pascal was a Roman Catholic. But he was a problem for a lot of the Roman Catholics, you will remember. And so, Paul Johnson, in one breath, told you what an incredibly, unbelievably great man he was. And the next breath, he said, but you know, he had a very weird emotional experience in 1654 that was confirmed two years later when a goddaughter had a remarkable healing and it affected all of his thinking. One of the best scholars in our century. But you see, what Pascal had from his point of view was a weird emotional experience. But you see, from the biblical point of view, he had a personal encounter with the living Christ. So vivid that he could tell you what time of day it was. It was between about a quarter of eleven and a quarter of one at nine. And he said, God came. Now, you know, that story about the African, you can say that's an interesting thing, or you can say that's the Holy Spirit, can't you? But if the Holy Spirit is at work in the world the way Jesus said he was, the way he told his disciples last night before the cross, then that kind of story shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because here's a person in the hunger of his heart in absolute darkness, just simply hears a possibility, and his spirit reaches for it. 
Now, what an obligation we have to every person like that that none of us know about, but they're there. And we have never been a generation before that had the opportunity of reaching as many. Okay. Now, uh, there's something else, though, that's taking place today that, uh, from my point of view, is incredibly important. Now, it's not known. It's never made front pages, to my knowledge. You can read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Time Magazine, the rest of them. You can read forever. And if you ever get a paragraph, that'll be about it. But there is, to me, it's sort of like, you remember when Elijah, after his bout with Jezebel, uh, he told them uh, the rain was going to come. And so he sent his servant up on the hill to look. And he kept coming back saying he didn't see anything. And finally he came back and he said, I see a cloud. It's about the size of a man's hand. Now, this one may not be as big as a man's hand, but I believe there's a cloud on the horizon that you and I ought to pay some attention to. Now, what is that? It is the fact that with the opening up of the rest of the world, both politically and technologically, there has come a remarkable ecumenical opening too. Now, I hope you will hear me because I, so oftentimes, when we use the term ecumenical, and I don't know what other term to use for it, we think of institutions talking to institutions so that the institutions can find a way that the fragmentation institutionally in Christendom can be healed. But that's not what's taking place. What's taking place is where Lutherans sit down with Russian Orthodox and say, are there some commonalities in our faith? And where Scottish Presbyterians sit down with Roman Catholic and with Eastern Orthodox and say, are there some commonalities in our faith? We both claim the same Christ. We both claim the same scripture. We both claim some creeds identically. Is there a commonality among us? They are not looking for institutional unity. They are looking for the oneness of the Christian faith. And it is having a remarkable impact on some strategic individuals. Now, how did this come about? Again, there are advantages in being old. In 1954, I was sitting in a class in Syriac at Princeton under Bruce Metzger. And one day, Bruce Metzger, the beginning of class, turned and said, uh, fellas, I don't, there was not a girl in our class. He said, fellas, there's some unusual things going on in the world. He said, uh, you know, it may be that the most significant biblical scholarship in the world is taking place in monasteries and seminaries in Eastern Europe with Roman Catholics. And we know almost nothing about it. He said, you know, a very significant thing happened in 1946. In 1946, the Vatican decided that Roman Catholic scholars could in their biblical research go behind the Vulgate. 
Now, you know enough to know that the Vulgate is the Roman Catholic Latin Bible. And until 1946, it was the absolute authority for the Roman Catholic Church. And you could find all the new Greek manuscripts or Hebrew manuscripts you wanted to, but the thing that told you what they all were supposed to say was not the original manuscripts, it was the Vatican, it was, it was the, the Vulgate. But in 1946, I suspect Cardinal Bayer was the chief influence. The Pope gave permission for scholars to report on the basis of the Greek text and the Hebrew text instead of the Vulgate. Now you know enough to know that every translation is only partially accurate. Just take, for instance, the Vulgate, instead of translating metanoia as repentance, translated it as penance. Now, penance is something you do to get the approval of the person you've offended. It's what you do. But repentance is another matter. It's a change of mind so you can get something from him that you can't give to him that will make you acceptable in his sight. I just simply use that as one illustration of how a translation can, you know, be a grid that perverts, twists the scripture as it comes through. So there began this incredible study of the biblical text in uh, Roman Catholic circles, particularly in Europe. Most of the stuff was printed in Austrian, German, Italian, other Eastern Europe, Romanian, paperback stuff that never got our attention. But slowly, the impact of the Word of God began to make an effect. And there's no question but that Vatican II was, a, was in a sense, a result of all that. Now, out of that, we now find, with the changes in the world and the changes in some religious circles, Roman Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox no longer separated and talking to each other and sharing what they have learned and what they see. Now, uh, the end result of that is that uh, they have looked to find what they had in common. Now, what is it that they have in common? Basically, it is in a special way, significant way, unique way, the first five centuries of the church. Because you see, for the Protestants, after uh, after Luther, we're separated. And the last of the Romans, after Augustine, pretty quickly, the Eastern Church was one thing and the Western Church was another. So these scholars began saying, what was Christianity like in the second century, the third century, and the fourth century? And they were that much closer to the original source. And there was a vitality in the church then, both spiritually and intellectually, that most of us in the Western world never knew anything about. Now, uh, you know, we had the feeling in the Western world that if you wanted to study earlier than the Reformers, you studied Augustine. But do you know what many of these scholars are saying now? Is that Augustine 
had a twisting effect on the biblical faith. And that there was a far richer understanding of God and of redemption before Augustine than the, than the church knew after him. Now, that probably, that's unjust to Augustine in many ways. But that's the way they are talking about it. That's the dividing line. So, uh, what they said is, we need to study these original fathers, what they said, what their problems were, what they felt the Christian faith was, and when they got into that, then they had to say, wait a minute, were they biblical? And so these scholars then had to scour the New Testament and the Old Testament to see if these early church fathers were biblical. Now, you know, what fascinates me is when you find a seminary professor who's a systematic theologian who's 50 years of 55 years of age and he's like the insurance salesman that says, you know, man, there may be some things in this insurance policy I'm selling that I didn't know were good there. Maybe I ought to reread this policy so I can sell it better. And that is the kind of thing. And you know, one of the things that distresses me is I know a lot of insurance salesmen who know their policies better than a lot of us who are preachers know our scriptures. Did you know that? So this kind of research into the biblical text has been going on in places nobody, the public, and most church leadership has known very little about. Now, the end result is that uh, some thing, very creative things have taken place. Uh, one of the ones that I have found very stimulating is a Scot. His name is Tom Tarrant. Uh, he may be the greatest English-speaking theologian in the 20th century. He began as a chaplain in the Second World War. He was a pastor for 10 years. Then he was a church history professor at the University of Edinburgh. Then they made him professor of systematic, the systematic theology. And so he taught systematic theology years, and he became the moderator of the Church of Scotland. He edited the works of Calvin. He uh, knows the Scottish Calvinistic tradition as well probably as about anybody in the world. And that's who he is. He's Mr. Presbyterian. When Princeton wanted to invite a Scottish Church of Scotland to Princeton, Tom Torrance is a natural one got a little book on preaching the gospel, which is a priceless, has two lectures in it, one of them he did at Princeton. Let me tell you what one of the, is one of the key parts in one of the lectures. It's interesting how uh, when you separate theology from the parish, you absolutely, almost inevitably corrupt it. Did you know that? When you separate systematic theology, biblical theology from the parish, you inevitably get off into abstraction. One of the things I love about Torrance is he's still a pastor, though he's a brilliant scholar. I have a son-in-law who's here somewhere who teaches theology at Asbury Seminary, who was a student at Edinburgh. And one Sunday morning went to Greyfriars Church, Church of Scotland, and found himself 
not, not intending to, but sitting in Tom Tyrant's pew. And Tom was not there that day. And so when the scripture was announced, he reached for a Bible and pulled it up, and there were four in the, in the rack there. There was a Greek New Testament. There was a Hebrew Old Testament. There was a German Bible. And there was a Latin. Okay. Now that's Tom Tyrant. That's the kind of uh, educational background. But you know what he said when he spoke at Princeton? He said, perhaps the most significant theological insight I have ever had came on a battlefield. He said, I had a 19-year-old boy dying on my hand. So, and he said, I knew he only had a few minutes to live. And he said, I wondered what to say to him. When he said, my question was answered by the boy himself. He looked up at me and very soulfully said, Padre, is God like Jesus Christ? Tom Tyrant said, I looked at him and as forcefully and as tenderly as I knew how, said, son, there is no God lurking behind the back of Jesus Christ that you have to fear. When you've seen him, you've seen God. Now, he was in, he, somewhere along in the 60s and in the early 70s in dialogue with the Eastern Orthodox, he decided it was his business to read the Eastern Fathers. So he sat down and he read Gregory, the two Gregories, Basil, Hillary, Athanasius, he read them all in, in, in Greek. And then he did a series of lectures that he turned into a book called The Trinitarian Faith. It is the greatest study of the fathers of the first four centuries of the church that you can find in print. And then after that, he wrote a second volume, which was published in 1996, and he's now in his 80s. And that is capstone on all his work, and it is the Christian concept of God, three persons in one being, one person, well, one God in three persons. And all of it came out of this work later in his ministry. If you will read his Trinitarian faith, if you'll read his work on mediation of Christ, on Christ's sacrifice for us, if you will read his work on the Christian concept of God, you will find that maybe every 50 pages or so, there's a phrase that occurs again and again. And that phrase is, behind the back of God. Because you see, that's what happened in the early church. In the first five centuries of the church, the big question was not, how can I get saved? It wasn't, how can I get rid of my guilt? How can I get past the judgment? How can I miss hell? Do you know what the pronouns are in all of those sentences? Do you know what the question was in the first four centuries of the church? Who's Jesus? Who is this one called Jesus of Nazareth? And that was their problem. 
because they knew if they could answer that question, all the other questions had the right answer. And so they wrestled with that. It may well be that the greatest, the greatest uh, expenditure of intellectual in, intellectual force in the history of the Christian church and the greatest display of intellectual genius in the history of the church took place in those first four centuries when they were wrestling with the question of who Jesus was. It was a life it was a light question for them. Now, you know enough. Let me talk some simple stuff here. You know why it was a question. Because, you see, they read the Gospels. And they read where Thomas looked at him and said, My Lord and my God. And noticed that Peter and John worshipped him. And treated him like he was God. And so the Jews said, that proves you're not one of us. Because you see, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's what it means to be a Jew. You've only got one God. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham. It's only one. You've got two. They said, no, we don't have two. We've only got one. They said, well, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, who was running the world? And they said, the Father. And he, they said, the Jews said, see, you've got two gods. You're polytheists. And the pagans said, yeah, you're one of us. We may have more than you've got, but you've got more than one. And they said, no, we're not one of you. Now, uh, how are you going to solve that and answer it? And that's what they had to answer. And the only reason we're here today is because of the work they did at that theological level in those three centuries. And they came to the place where they said, we believe in one God. But somehow or other, he's not a monad. There is something in his unicity that's multiple. Now, you know what I think of every time I get to that point in reading this stuff? <laughs> I think of the guy sitting in front of the pot-bellied stove at the country store back in the old days, chewing his tobacco and spitting, and he says, I says to myself, says I, and I think, who's talking to whom? You do get some multiplicity inside us sometimes, don't you? Well, they said, in the very oneness of God, there is this diversity that is reflected in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, as, as they wrestled with that, and as they dealt with that, the uh, results have been very interesting to me, and very, from my point of view, very heartwarming. They were forced, obviously, to what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. The belief in he's one God in three persons. Now, what interests me is that that was the major work of the first five centuries. And do you know what it seems to me is the most significant thing that has happened in the 20th century? I really am not interested in the politics particularly. 
That's this way, you know. I am interested in the technology because it opens up worlds of opportunity for us. But, you know, ideas have consequences. And we may be a relig- people who have a religion of persons and events, but those persons and events have implicit within them eternal truths. And if we are to understand those persons and events, we need those eternal truths in order to understand them and interpret them. And so do you know, as far as I can find, there has been more theological work on the doctrine of the Trinity in the 20th century than in any century in Christian history since the 4th century. Now, I'm not an expert on all of this, so just remember that. But the data that has come to me is that a key factor in it was Karl Barth, then successors of his. And there has not been a major theologian since Karl Barth who has not had to deal with the Trinity. And it was almost as if you've got new country, and they're exploring, and each each explorer pushes the frontier just a little farther. But in the last 15, 20 years, they've just sort of broken through into new territory. And it's fascinating to watch with people like Tom Sarns, people like uh, Colin Gunton. You don't know that name? You ought to. At uh, King's College, University, uh, London University on the faculty here at Asbury is working in that department and it is a department that is centered. One of the men in it is John Zizuel is a good Eastern, he's a metropolitan in the Eastern European Church. Very interesting work on the being of God and the, the persons of the Trinity. But anyway, great concern for the doctrine of the Trinity. You uh, will find it... Uh, if you look at the serious work that's been done theologically, this has been a key thing in the last 20 years. Now, it is more than systematic theology. Because, you see, systematic theology and biblical studies have to stay together or else each one becomes an end in itself and becomes an idol. You see, biblical studies are to enable us to understand the theology. And the theology is to help us understand what the biblical text is saying. And so, but the great tragedy is that in most of our theological seminaries, the biblical studies are over here, and the theological studies are over here, and they develop their canons for saying what the Bible can say over here, and they develop their canons for saying what the Bible is saying over here, and they don't match. And these guys need these guys, and these guys need those. Now let me tell you why I picked this. Leslie Newbigin is an Anglican bishop who has spent most of his life in India as a missionary bishop. He is, uh, I can't remember whether he's an Oxford or Cambridge man, but he's, he's an English blue blood. And he's got that kind of background. He is a first-rate New Testament scholar. But in India, 
he found himself in dialogue with Hindus and with Sikhs and with Muslims. And you know, you find out whether your faith will stand and you find out what's essential when you get into that kind of thing. And so the end result is that Leslie Newbegin became one of the great theological minds of the 20th century. Now the beauty is that combination. He's a churchman. But he is a biblical scholar. And he is also a theologian. And so when he deals with the Gospel of John, it is a theological commentary. Uh, I have a young lady who works with me who's very, very sensitive, very gifted. And so I made her read Leslie Newbigin. I got an email from her. She's 24. She said, I've wept most of the day. I've been reading Newbigin, and it's been a day of adoration. You know how seldom it is you ever get a person to find Christ in a Bible class? <laughs> At seminary? I'm a seminarian. I'm talking about us. One of the things I love about Leslie Newbigin is, he said, who killed Jesus? He said, the church bureaucrats. He said, I'm one. He's a bishop. He said, we're the Jews in the Gospel of John. And he's talking about the Anglican bishop. But he said, but he goes ahead. You know how seldom it is in a New Testament class anybody's ever called to the mission field. And in a systematic theology class, do you expect a person to meet and know God? That's, that's, that's the problem, one of the problems we have. So I love a guy like Newbegin who puts all that together. So I hope you, I've read Newbegin twice. I've read his other stuff, but I've read this volume twice. I intend to read it again. Could I tell you a story I got from A.W. Tozer? I was his chauffeur once for a half a day. I'd pay for that privilege any time. So we're riding along. Here's a guy who never graduated from high school. He started, we started talking books. He told me about books that I didn't know existed. I had my training at Asbury and at Princeton. And when he told me about it, he knew them. He may have been the best read man I ever knew on the basis of it. That's what I would conclude from that conversation, which, of course, was limited exposure. But we're in the middle of this conversation. And he looks over at me and says, Kenlaw, don't ever, ever read a good book. And I blinked. And I said, I beg your pardon? Oh, no, he said. Don't ever, ever read a good book. You don't have time. You'll never read all the best. For God's sake, don't waste your time on a good one. I told that to one of my grandsons. <laughs> He's a college freshman who had a course in philosophy and they made him read Augustine's Confessions. He was home for Christmas and he brought Augustine's Confessions with him. And he's sitting, laboring away in this paperback, big, thick thing. His older brother looks at him and says, 
Aren't you ever going to finish that book? Likes to explore new territory. He said, this is my second time through. Have you ever read a good book twice? Now, uh, I hope you'll read you. And I hope you'll read it to learn. And to, and to worship. Okay. Now that's the kind of thing that is taking place because Newbegin wrestles with the subject question of who Jesus is, which forces him into Trinitarian <coughs> thinking in his treatment of the Gospel of John. Now, uh, you know the text that uh, they had to turn to, like where Jesus says, uh, I can do nothing of myself. I can only do what my father tells me to do and shows me to do. He says, I don't have life in myself. My father has life in himself and he gives me my life. Uh, the works that I do, they're really not my work. They're his work and he's doing them through me. Uh, you know, he says, I and my father, we're really one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you get me, you get him. And if you miss me, you miss him. Now, they had to go back and live in those texts and say, what was he saying? Then, of course, they turned to, uh, well, you get to know that capstone on the Logos passage in 1 John, where in one eighteen it says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, has exegeted him. You know, the Greek word there, Greek verb there is the verb to exegete. So Jesus has exegeted God for us. Now that's what Tom Tarnas was getting at when he said, you don't have to worry about any ghost behind the back of Jesus. When you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Then they had to turn to Paul and find where Paul says all the fullness of the God dwells in him. But not only does all the fullness of Godhead dwell in him, but all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in him. And do you know they have begun to take a second look at the humanity of Jesus? Because you see, he's the God-man. And if you want to get a true vision of God, picture of God, you've got to deal with it. And now they're saying, wait a minute. If we're to find out who we are, he's what we're supposed to be. And let me tell you, mental paradigms are turning upside down. Now, uh, Jesus, the window on God. Now, in their thinking, there are two approaches to the Trinity. They are what they call the ontological, and the other is what they call the economic Trinity. The first one they speak of is the theological, and the second one they speak of is the evangelical Trinity. Now, first, let me take the second one first, because it's the simplest. It is the triune God that's revealed at Sinai. Bethlehem and Calvary, and at Pentecost. And you see who he is? He's the one who speaks to Moses. He has a personal name, I am. He is the sovereign Lord of history. 
He wants people so that through that people the world can know about him. And he cares enough about it that he gives the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, to us. And when the eternal Son leaves, he gives a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord of the church. And is the one who works out grace and redemption within us. Now there you see are those. Now in the early church there were those who said, well that's the same God with three faces. And they said, well, then who was running the universe when he was saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So they said, that won't work. And they said, some of them said, well, there are three gods. And they said, well, if that's so, then we're just like the pagans. And uh, so they kept working with that. All right. Now, the ontological trinity is the God, the triune Godhead, who is behind these manifestations that you get at Sinai and at Calvary and at Pentecost. Many people said, well, the one behind is one, you see, one God, one person. And then they said, well, what about Jesus? When he said, before Abraham was, I am, and I'm the only being begotten son of the Father. And the passage where Jesus speaks about his eternal, his eternal character. And slowly it began to dawn on them that this economic trinity is a reflection of an ontological trinity behind and that before there was ever a thing created, there was one God in three persons and three persons in one God. Now, uh, that, uh, that makes a difference if you see it and if you assimilate it. Now, uh, one of the things that happens in this is you come up with a different concept of God. You've got a quotation. There's a quotation from Tom Torrance in your pack. I think it's loose. And it is from his book, The Mediation of Christ. And in it, Tom Torrance, who is Mr. Calvinism, Mr. Presbyterianism, he says, a study of the early church fathers and of the New Testament texts make me believe that the God who is reflected in the Westminster Confession is not the God of the New Testament. Now, you know, uh, that's like my wife saying she doesn't believe in motherhood. Mr. Calvinism, do you know what you had to do in order to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church? You had to say that the Westminster Confession contains a theology in the New Testament. And now the greatest Presbyterian in the world says the God who's reflected in that is the God of abstraction and not the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Now what difference does it make? If you take the systematic theologies across the board, generally that have written, been written in the last thousand years, you know where they all start? They all start with the oneness of God, the being of God. And then they do a sort of digression on, yes, but he's triune. But the Trinity is a marginal thing. Tom Torrance is saying, if the New Testament's true, the Trinity is the triuneness is a way to get at the being. Now, what difference does it make? Let me give you an illustration. The third chapter of Exodus has, has become almost the major motif 
in this study for anything anything Old Testament. Now you remember what the uh, third chapter of Genesis is. It's where Moses is tending sheep and a bush burns. And he stops to see and the bush doesn't, isn't consumed. The leaves still stay green. And he's astounded and looks and a voice comes out of it and says, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. It's very clear. He understands the language. He takes his shoes off. And then this one who's speaking through that burning bush says, I want you to go down to Pharaoh and tell him to tell my son, let my son go. I think that may be the first reference to the fatherhood of God in the Bible. Go down and let my son go. And Moses says, when I go down and tell the elders of Israel that somebody's told me, go tell Pharaoh to let him out of Egypt, they're going to say, who sent you? What was his name? And God said, well, I'll tell you my name. He's got a personal name. I'm a homo, a man. But I also have a personal name. I'm Dennis Kenlaw. And do you know I'm the only Dennis F. Kenlaw, Franklin Kenlaw in the world? Now, all the Greek theologians, the philosophers wanted the universal behind it all. And here's this God who says, no, there's a particular behind everything. And he's got a personal name. He says, I am that I am. Asher, Echye, Asher, Echye. Uh, in the Greek, ego, ami. Now, we translate that in the English, I am that I am. Now, really, the that is like a quotation mark. So what God says to Moses is, tell him, I'm I am. Now, uh, you know, I missed that for 70 years. I marvel at my capacity to overlook things. But do you know uh, what he's saying? He says, I am. And I'm the only one who can say that. When you say I am, you have to say I am because. But when I say it, all I have to say is I am. Now I want you to notice what person it is. It's not third person. And it's not second person. It's first person. I am. And in the Greek it is ego, I, me, I am. I, it's for me, I am. Now, you know, an interesting thing has happened in the translations of that. When that was translated in the Septuagint, catch this. They translated, I am that I am. They translated echo a me, and then they put ha on. Now on is the present participle of the verb to be. So the translation is I am, and ha is the masculine article. So when they put it into Greek, which is the Bible Paul used, and which is the Bible the early church had to use, they they translated. I am the one who is, or he who is. Now, did you notice something? His name is, 
I'm he who is. We've now gone from third, first person to third person. And God is not, listen to me, he's not a subject with whom I'm dealing. He's an object. Now why did they translate it that way? Because you see, the Greek philosophers kept looking for what gives unity to all of this massive creation, which is called a cosmos. And cosmeo means to be ordered. So they felt there was order in the universe. Now, what was the single thing behind it that gave it that unity? Now, Aristotle's phrase was tall, on. On is the neuter participle of the verb to be. be. And tall is the neuter article. So the Greeks were not looking for something personal. They were not looking for a person. They were looking for a force that would be responsible for everything. And so the translators of the Septuagint said, well, we'll straddle that ground. And so they made being, but it's masculine or personal, and uh, but it's third person. Now, you know the great problem with theology is we eternally put him in the third person. He's one whom we study. And do you know something? There is no way, if God is who the scriptures say he is, that you can ever get God into the third person. Have you ever been talking about your wife and she walked up? Or you've been talking about somebody else and that person suddenly walked up and you found your conversation changing? Do you know what most theology is? We're talking about him before he comes. But you know he's there all along. There is never a moment when you can get God into the third person. Do you know what his name is? His name, the angel said, is Emmanuel. Now that's what Paul Johnson couldn't understand. Because when Paul Johnson read about uh, Pascal, he said uh, he had a weird religious experience. And there was no person involved. Do you know the most important person here this morning? We were in a service not too long ago, and Elsa said to me, you know, I sensed when he came. Now, I understand that language. But where was he before he came? Now, something happened. She had an experience. But what happened was, she suddenly became aware. Do you remember those guys on the Emmaus Road? He was all third person until they watched him break the bread. <laughs> and suddenly they saw the scars in his hand. Now, you know, apparently we're supposed to live in the breaking of the bread. There's no place to hide from him. I can play games that he's not present. And we do. What do you do when you're totally alone? Do you ever do anything you wouldn't do if your congregation was there watching you? Now that's what we're talking about. 
Now let me say, we got them to take a break. But you know what interests me? Now this is a long jump from where we are. But in the second hour, I want to see if it's possible to get there. Do you know that if you if this is true, then I'm supposed to live eternally in his immediate presence. And do you know something? It's hard to sin when he's physically standing there. We now have a theological paradigm that makes entire sanctification, Christian perfection, perfect love, the natural result development out of biblical faith and out of the out of redemption. Whereas we've had for four hundred and fifty years perfect love, Christian perfection's been a tack on that we tried to tack on to another paradigm where it didn't fit. Did you hear me? <laughs> Have you ever tried to explain to a lot of your friends why you're a Wesleyan? I've been in a number of positions where, you know, they've been very tolerant. I'm in one organization where I'm their token Wesley. And why am I there? They want to show their uh, broad-mindedness and their ecumenical spirit. But do you know what I believe is the capstone of what Jesus came to do for us? It's unattainable. And if it were, it would be a tack-on. Do you hear me? Now, there is enough change that is taking place in the theological world that the founders of Asbury Seminary may have been closer to the future than they were to the past. 